The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. So good to be with you this evening. And I am really excited about what the Lord has put on my heart to share with you all. You know, there are those words that Jeremiah described as like his word is like burning inside me. And I feel like this is one of those messages. I'm, I, I mean, it's exciting every time I share the word. But there are those messages that I just get a little extra amped for. And uh, this is certainly one of those. We are in a powerful portion of scripture tonight. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to John's gospel. We're going to be in the 15th chapter looking at a very familiar passage of scripture to many of us as we continue this two-week mini-series that I'm titling Flourish, and the idea is that God wants us to, to not just survive. He doesn't want us to flounder. He wants us to flourish. We were designed for an overflow. We were designed to abound in every good work, and so that's what we talked about last week, and we talked about planting ourselves in the house of the Lord and how that will cause us to flourish in the courts of our God. And this evening, we're going to carry on in that same vein as we look at John 15. And the title of my message for you all is The Secret of the Vine. But before we get into that, I wanted to begin with a word of prayer. And especially, I want to lift up our service members in Afghanistan. I want to lift up the Christians who are being persecuted over there. I want to lift up the Afghanis who are suffering under the hands of the Taliban who has taken control over there. And there's just so much going on. I was talking with one of our um, security team members in the back. His son is in Kabul. And we, we just want to pray protection over him, peace in that region for God's mercy to extend and to, to cover and to protect. Amen? So let's go before the Lord and, and, and ask him for these things. Jesus, we, we don't have the answers. And we look at the situation in Afghanistan and the evacuation efforts and the loss of life with this blast that happened the other day from a suicide bomber taking 200 plus innocent lives. And, and our hearts grieve with those family members who lost loved ones. Our hearts grieve with those parents who sent their sons and daughters into harm's way to protect the freedoms that we enjoy as Americans. We, we thank you and, and, and honor them, Lord, for just the sacrifice that they were willing to make. Jesus, you say, greater love has no man than this than he lays down his life for his friends. And, so we ask for their protection, Lord. We ask for um, a reversal of the situation over there. It's, it's upended, it's upheaval, it's chaos. And Jesus, you're the author of peace. The enemy is the author of chaos and division. And so we claim our divine authority and we partner with heaven in this prayer. And we ask that you would thwart the intentions of the wicked, that you would bring your rule and your reign to that part of the world, Jesus. We pray for the kingdom to advance, for the gospel to make inroads. And we ask that what the enemy intends for evil, Jesus, you would use for good. And we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Well, let's go ahead and begin by reading in John 15. Look at verse 1. Jesus says, I 
am the true vine. This is one of seven I am statements that Jesus makes that we find scattered throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. All right, so the events of this chapter, the context in which Jesus made these statements, he, he said these things on the heels of the last meal that he ever shared with his disciples. We often refer to that meal as the Last Supper. And over dinner, Jesus instituted the elements of communion. And then after dinner, he got up and washed his disciples' feet. Over the course of that meal, he discussed topics like heaven and the Holy Spirit and the fact that he was not long for this world. He told them that he would soon be leaving them. And then upon the completion of the meal, Jesus got up with his disciples and began to, his, to make his way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was not too far away. As they walked, you can imagine that the mood would have been somber. There was a heaviness in the air due to the words Jesus said to them about getting ready to leave them. Jesus was under no illusions about, about what awaited him in that garden. He knew that he was about to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 men that he had poured himself into for the last three and a half years. He knew that he would be handed over to the Romans and that he would be crucified on a cross between two thieves. And as they walked and made their way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, they would have undoubtedly have passed through one of several vineyards that pockmarked that part of Jerusalem in the ancient city at that time. And I can imagine Jesus at a certain point stopping along the way and picking up a tendril of a vine in his hands as he begins to talk with the disciples about the vine and the branches. You see, the, the connection between Israel and the vine traces its roots all the way back to the 12 spies who, when they went in to spy out the promised land, came back bearing on their shoulders between two poles a cluster of grapes that was so large that it took two men to carry it. And that symbol of the vine, from that moment forward, it went on to, to characterize or become like a national symbol for the nation of Israel in, in the same way that the rising sun represents Japan or perhaps the way that the lion represents the nation of England. According to 
Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at that time, he worked for the Romans, uh, above the, the doors of the temple entrance, there was this huge depiction of a vine with its branches and clusters of grapes. Even the coins at that time had the image of a vine on them. The point I'm trying to, to stress here is that when Jesus begins to speak using this metaphor of the vine and the branches, he's talking to them about something that would have been extremely familiar to them. You could say that the disciples knew grapes the way that an Englishman knows tea. Then as he goes on and he begins to address God as the vine dresser, we see that in verse one. I can imagine the disciples all kind of nodding their heads in agreement. Perhaps their minds even flash to one of the many passages of scripture that paint God in this light. And yet even though the metaphor was familiar to them, something Jesus said took it on a detour. He changes the metaphor in a significant way when he refers to himself as the true vine. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. You see, in all the Old Testament references to the vine, Israel was always the one that was pictured as the vine. And so, for example, in Psalm 80, it says this, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations. You planted it. You cleared the ground for it. And, took, and it took root and filled the land. So you can see in, in, that verses, in that verse, just like all the other verses in the Old Testament where Israel is referred to as a vine, it's, it's the nation that's the vine. But here Jesus changes the metaphor. He says, I'm the true vine. True vine. Instead, he's, he's saying what Israel typified, the picture that Israel was meant to represent, I am the ultimate or true fulfillment. In the way that Israel was supposed to paint a picture of the loving care of its heavenly vine dresser, that's what I came in the fullness of. But this idea that Jesus is the true vine, it's not the only surprising thing that Jesus had to say that night. In addition to, to modifying the metaphor, Jesus also elaborated on it when he pointed to the disciples and he said, I'm the vine and you guys, you're the branches. From there, he went on to talk to them about how it was his goal and desire and the Father's will that they should go out and bear fruit. Now, interesting, I learned this last week, that when you plant a new vine, you'll cultivate it and you'll grow it for the first two years and you won't harvest any fruit from it. That doesn't happen until the third year. <laughs> kind of interesting, right? Jesus spends three years cultivating and tending the vines of his disciples. And then after three years, he looks at them and he says, it's about that time, isn't it, guys? Time for you to begin bearing fruit. Now, this whole idea of fruit bearing, it's a familiar theme that gets painted throughout the scriptures. And I want you to know that in the life of a believer, fruit represents the productive Christian life. When you bear fruit, you're bearing Christ-likeness. Christ is shining through you. His love is flowing through you. Now, I'd like to identify for you three characteristics of, of fruit in the life of the Christian. Number one, fruit always bears the nature of the tree from which it comes. That makes sense, right? 
Apple trees don't beget pears. Pear trees don't beget lemons. And lemon trees don't beget oranges. The, the fruit that comes from a tree, it, it, it speaks of the nature, and it is an overflow of the character of the tree from which it flows. So that's the first thing. Secondly, fruit is always visible. There's not one person in this room who has ever seen invisible fruit. Here's what I mean by that. If you're bearing fruit in your life, then that means other people around you are going to be able to see evidence of that fruit in your life. And number three, the third characteristic of fruit, fruit always exists for the benefit of others. Fruit doesn't eat itself, in other words. The only fruit that eats itself is rotten fruit. So fruit that is consuming itself, this is rotten fruit. And when you're bearing fruit, according to these rules, it's going to be fruit that glorifies the Father. It's going to be evident and visible. And there's going to be something about your life that people see you and they want to take a bite out of you. They want to spend time with you. They want to be like you. Where there is no evidence of these things in your life, then you're a fruitless vine. So there are different characteristics of fruit, and there are different degrees of fruitfulness. We see that evidenced in the scripture here. There are four different levels of fruitfulness, fruitfulness that Jesus talks about. In verse 2, for example, he talks about those branches that bear no fruit. And then in the same verse, he talks about those branches that bear fruit, and then those that bear some fruit. And then if you jump down to verse 5, Jesus talks about those branches that bear much fruit. Now, that's where we want to land. That's where we want to live. It's a super abundance of fruit. And then in verse 16, Jesus mentions these, these branches whose fruit remains. So if you will, picture four baskets up here. In the first basket, you have nothing. It's empty. The second basket has fruit in it. The third basket has more fruit in it. It's almost full. And then you've got this fourth basket that's just overflowing with grapes and vines and fruit. You see, God's desire is that wherever you land on that chart, that you would be moving from one basket to the next, that you would flourish. He wants you to abound with fruit that remains. This is what you were created for, super abundance of fruit. So the question I want to think through with you this evening is this. If that's God's desire, if he wants to bring about a supernatural increase of fruit in our lives, then how do we get there? How does he do that? And what we find is that there are several different strategies, several different methods that the scriptures point to and that we can find in nature about what vine dressers will do for a vine in order to coax more fruit from it. And the, and the first thing that I want you to note is that when a vine dresser sets about trying to produce fruit, the first natural thing that he does is he looks for the ideal place to plant his vineyard, right? This is obvious. And we've got this beautiful picture of a vineyard here behind me. How many of you want to just move there and just have that as your backyard? Oh my goodness. Now this is, this is surprising. When a vine dresser looks for the ideal place to plant his vineyard, you might think that he would look for a flat piece of fertile ground with rich, soft, nice soil, but you would be wrong. What a vine dresser looks for is actually 
a rocky hillside. Interesting. You'll even notice in this picture how it's a sloping hill. And if you go to Napa Valley or some of these other places, wine country in California, we've got so many vineyards, oftentimes you'll find that these vines are growing on rocky hillsides. Now, why is that? Here's why. I've been reading about this. It's been so fun. If you plant a vineyard in flat, nice, rich soil where it has an abundance of nutrients and water, access to water, then what it's going to produce is nice, big, plump grapes that are full of water but don't have a lot of taste and they make terrible wine. So the idea in finding this rocky soil is is you want the, the vine to have to struggle and stress. The water runs down the hill, so the vine has to, to work to get that water. It has to work to push through those rocks and develop strong roots. Again, the reason for this, if it just has a nice cushy life, then the vine's going to settle down. It's going to think to itself, this is a really great life that I have here. I think I'm just going to produce some some more leaves. But when its life is consistently hard, it thinks to itself, I don't want to settle down here. I'm meant to be somewhere else. And so it'll put all of its energy and all of its resources to the task of producing more grapes. There's even a saying among vinters that goes like this, struggling vines make the best wines. Have you ever heard that? Struggling vines make the best wines. Ooh, isn't there some truth to be mined in that sentence? That's not just true of grapevines. That's equally true of Christians. I've found in my own experience, I'm sure you would attest to this, that cushy times and cushy lives produce soft Christians. And, And the inverse of that is also true. Tough times produce a depth of character. And this could be one of the reasons why you're struggling right now. It might be that the reason you're going through that difficult time and you're like, why am I not experiencing uh, more ease in my life? And why is, why is life so stressful? Why are my kids so stressful? Why is my husband so stressful? Why is my work so stressful? And you go down the list and it could be that God is wanting to use those stressful things to improve the quality of the wine that is coming from you. Just remember that the next time you're having a difficult conversation with an in-law or a coworker, you can look at them in the eye and smile with the knowledge in your head that God is improving the quality of the wine in your life. James said it like this. He said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must also finish its work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking any good thing. So God is doing something through the struggle, through the stress. He plants us in places where we can flourish, and and, and he has a design in that. That's the first thing. But after you've planted the vine, the next thing that a vine dresser must do in order to get the most out of their vine is they have to remove or deal with, rather, the barren branches. And we see this in verse 2, where Jesus says this, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, so we're talking about barren branches, he takes these branches away. Now, that sounds a little scary, right? You're thinking, I don't know if I'm 
producing a lot of fruit. I'm in a, a dry season right now. Does that mean I'm in danger of being carried away and taken off? And is, is the Lord kind of like going around and, oh, you're not bearing any fruit? You're out of here. Is that what's being communicated? And it would almost feel that way based on the way this text reads. But, but that's not actually the intent behind the Greek word here for take away. I did some research on this. If you look closely, you'll notice that these branches are described as branches that are in him. Verse 2, Jesus says, every branch in me. In other words, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to believers. These are branches that are in him, and so they belong to him. This is the language that you see used throughout the New Testament to describe a believer. A believer is someone who is in Jesus. So if we're not talking about believers being taken away and carted off and cast aside, then what are we talking about here? Well, check it out. The, the word for takeaway in the Greek, it's the word airo, A-I-R-O. And it can also be translated, you'll find this in the footnotes of your Bible, it can be translated in this way, to lift up or to take up. And it's my opinion that that's how this use of the word should have been translated in this particular case. Another instance where it's used in that way would be the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And after that, we're, we're told how the disciples went around and they took up 12 baskets of leftovers. So this paints actually a really cool picture for us. When you read the verse in that way, here's how it reads. Every branch in me, Jesus says, that does not bear fruit, he what? He lifts up. This speaks again to the nature of a vine. You see, vines have a natural tendency, just like this one over here. They want to grow down. And if a vine has the ability to, to get to the ground because of the weight from the, the branches or the fruit, then what it ends up doing is it ends up rooting itself to the ground there. Instead of using the sap and the energy from the, the trunk to, to produce grapes, it just roots itself to the ground. And while it's on the ground, it can become infested with bugs and parasites. And, and if, if there's moisture or it rains, then the leaves get covered in mildew and mud. And so what the vine dresser does is he carefully walks through his vineyard and where he finds a vine on the ground is he doesn't chop it off, but he he tenderly and carefully lifts it up. He lifts it up. And then he takes a rag, and with water, he washes it off. And then the, the next thing that he does is he'll train that vine to grow along a trellis where it can be elevated. This is so cool, guys. He lifts it up. He washes it off. He trains it to grow along the trellis. What does this speak to? It speaks to the exact thing that our heavenly vine dresser does with us. You see, you and I, we're like vines in this way. We have this tendency to want to root ourselves to this earth. We become earthbound in our thinking. We have to fight this continual temptation to just kind of plant ourselves and think that this earth is our home. And so when the Father sees us, our heavenly vine dresser sees us becoming too earthly in our habits and in our attitudes and in our thinking, what does he do? He comes by and he lifts us up and he washes us off. How does he wash us? Look at verse 3. You are now clean, Jesus said, by the words that I have spoken to you. 
He washes us through the water of the word. Ephesians 5.26 talks about this. Paul the Apostle says that husbands are, ought to wash their brides in the water of the word. The word of God has a cleansing effect on us. It washes away the dirt, the grime, the, the filth of this world. So that's one thing he does. But after he lifts us and washes us off with the water of the word, the other thing that he does is he trains us to grow along a stake or a trellis. Now, what does the trellis represent? I believe it represents the work of the church. The church comes alongside, and, and there's just something special that happens when we gather in places like this, and we, we sing corporately, and we lift up the name of Jesus, and our thoughts are elevated. Our minds are set on things above instead of on things that are earthly in nature. And it just has this way of reprogramming us and redirecting our thoughts and intentions and attitudes and desires. And the trellis of the, 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 the vine growing on the trellis, it elevates us. The water washes us. And Jesus lifts us up. It's a beautiful picture. Now, the next thing that the vine dresser does to maximize the amount of fruit that he gets from his vine is this. He prunes it. And we see this also in verse 2, where Jesus says, after saying the branches that are barren, he lifts up. He goes on to say this, every branch that, that bears fruit, so there's fruit coming from this branch, he prunes so that it what? That it might bear more fruit. Remember, we're talking about moving from the empty basket to the basket with fruit, to the one with more fruit, to the one with an abundance, a super abundance, a supernatural outflow of fruit. And the way the vine dresser gets us from this basket into the, the one with more is, is this pruning process. By the way, pruning is the vine dresser's most important technique for ensuring a plentiful harvest. Now, I want to spend some time with this one. Because when I used to read this scripture, what I pictured was the vine dresser walking around with something like these. And I imagined him just kind of randomly and indiscriminately just kind of hacking away at the branches, not paying too much attention to what he was doing. This is just kind of what I had in my mind. I don't know what you thought of. And I was even ready to preach from that point. You know, I thought a, a little bit about bringing out a chainsaw or one of those ones. Just, yeah, sometimes God whacks away at you, huh? And this is what I pictured, a big set of shears that the, the gardener or the vine dresser might come by with. But I learned this last week that, that that's not the picture at all. It's not a, a big set of shears that a vine dresser uses. Actually, the process is incredibly intimate. It's personal. It's meticulous. And, and the tool that he uses, the instrument that he uses, is something small like this. It fits between the palm and four fingers. And, and the idea is that the vine dresser walks in and among his vines, and he's looking for very specific things to cut away. He's not just randomly cutting things, but it's a delicate and very personal process. The point is this. The vine dresser doesn't prune the vine in order to punish it. His goal is to promote more fruitfulness. Remember that. 
God doesn't cut us to hurt us. He's trying to help us increase in the amount of fruit that flows from us. Now, specifically, when you look at this, there are, there are three things that I, I found that I identified that the vine dresser looks for to cut away when he, when he walks among his vineyard. And the first thing that he looks for is dead branches. Dead branches got to go. And so, for example, there's there's this little branch right here. You probably can't see it, and it just came off, but I'm just going to snip it right there. This branch is lifeless. It's dead. It's not serving the vine in any way. Become, you know, infested with disease and kill the rest of the plant if it's not dealt with. So the dead thing's got to go. We, we can see where this analogy is going. It's pretty obvious, right? There are times in our lives when we, we kind of we bring on dead things. It might be an old wound that we're refusing to let go of. It might be an attitude that Jesus says needs addressing. It might, it might be a habit. It's a dead thing. And, and Jesus says, our loving vine dresser comes to us and he says, I've got to get rid of this thing because it's going to prohibit further growth in your life. So that's one thing, dead branches. A second thing that the vine dresser looks to cut away is overgrowth. Now, this is kind of interesting. Overgrowth, where there's just a superabundance of leaves, you think, well, that's good. It's a sign of life. But if, if the plant is putting all of its effort into this overgrowth, it's not going to produce fruit. Now, in the life of the believer, there are times when, when you're just going, going, going. You're doing all kinds of stuff. You're super busy. You've got, you're, you're involved in every ministry, and you're just running 100 miles an hour, and the Lord may come along at some point. Or he may lay it on your heart to do some self-pruning and say, you know what? I've got too much going on. There's just an overgrowth in this area of my life, and I've got to prune some things back, some, some leaves back, because there's just too much going on in this area of my life. And I want to leave room so that the most important elements in my life, those things can get more attention, and I can be more fruitful in these specific areas that God has called me to, these specific ministries. Overgrowth gets cut. And the third thing that gets cut is the thing called sucker shoots. You know what a sucker shoot is? Sucker shoots, this is a curious one, because a sucker shoot looks just like a healthy branch. It looks, for all practical intents and purposes, like it's a fruit-bearing branch. It has plenty of life. It has plenty of leaves. But here's the thing. The sucker shoot never produces any fruit. And so the sucker shoots have got to go in the life of a believer like they need to go in the life of a vine. Now, what do the sucker shoots represent? I think that the sucker shoots represent those, those seemingly good things that are robbing you of the best things. You see, sometimes there's good things in our lives that need to go in order to make room for the best things. It might be a relationship, a behavior, whatever it is. It's, it's something that's robbing the sap of the vine from being able to flow unhindered into a branch that's bearing fruit, OK? And some of you at this point, maybe you're wondering, well, how do I know if or where God is pruning me? And here's where I, where I would encourage you to start looking. You can start by looking at the pain points in your life. That could be the place where the vine dresser's shears are beginning to go to work, snipping away at the dead things, the overgrowth and the sucker shoots. 
C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. The, the discomfort that we feel in our life, it's God saying, pay attention here. You remember how it was when you were a little kid and you would get hurt and you would go running into your mom and you'd have a skin knee or wherever or whatever and your mom, the first question she would ask is, where does it hurt? And so too in our lives, when we look to those places, those pain points in our lives, we can see the delicate hands of our vine dresser cutting away, shaping his shears at work, strengthening us for a season of abundance that's to come down the line. You see, that's the thing about pruning. We prune now so that we can experience more fruit later. It's all about the harvest down the road. And that's the whole emphasis of this passage, isn't it? It's about moving from no fruit to fruit to more fruit to much fruit to fruit that remains. And this is where we want to land. And if this is your desire, like it is mine, and you're praying, God, I want a superabundance of fruit. I want a supernatural overflow of love in my heart, joy in my heart, peace in my heart. Then what you were praying for, know this, is that the Father would take his shears and go to work on your heart. Now, all the things that we've talked about up to this point get us to more fruit. But if you want to land at much fruit, which is where I hope and pray all of us want to land, then you've got to learn the secret of the vine. And we read about that beginning in verse 5, where Jesus says this, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, then you're going to bear much fruit. This, friends, is the secret of the vine. You see, according to Jesus, the secret to bearing a bumper crop of fruit is abiding in him. This concept, this, this whole idea of abiding in Jesus, it's something that is so significant, so important, that Jesus mentions it 10 times in six verses. He points to it as the key for all growth and all maturing and all fruitfulness in the life of the believer. So we got to dig into this one a little bit. What did Jesus mean? What does the word abide speak to? Well, it means to remain, to continue, or to dwell in. This is what Jesus wants from us. And the thing that I love about it is it doesn't have anything to do with memorizing more Bible verses or attending more conferences or earning more merit badges or, or doing good works to a greater extent. No, no, no. It's incredibly simple. It's about seeking him, longing for him, communicating with him, hearing from him, walking in fellowship and in relationship with him. And by the way, it's not a suggestion. It's not a request. This is a command. When you look at the, the way that this word was written in the Greek language, it's written in the form of a command. It's so essential, in fact, that Jesus says, if you don't abide in me, then you can't do anything. You can't even do anything apart from abiding in him. Picture, if you will, I don't know, one of these, these branches, maybe one that I cut off. If I had a branch up here, some branch that was severed from the trunk of the vine is holding it up here. 
Just as it would be impossible for that branch to produce even a single leaf or a single grape, Jesus says, if you get away from me, you can't do anything. Now, maybe there would be some pushback from someone in here that would say, I don't know about that. Because I know a lot of non-Christians out there that aren't giving God any glory. They're not abiding in him in any meaningful way, but they're building this Fortune 500 company and they've got a great family and they're doing all kinds of stuff, enterprising, business-wise, and in all of these different ways. So what do you mean they're not doing anything? Well, here's the key. You won't be able to do anything that remains. What good is it if you build this whole empire, but then at the end of your life, it all counts for nothing in light of eternity? We're, we're, we're talking about fruit that remains here. And to do that, if you want to produce that kind of fruit, fruit that yields a, a harvest, not just in your life, but in the next generation and the generation after that, in order to do that, you've got to abide. So how does that work? What does abiding look like? How does it work? Picture, if you will, the place, the point, at which the branch connects or meets to the trunk. That, that point right here in this plant, that's where abiding happens. It's where the sap from the trunk is able to flow into the vine and there produce life and fruit. So what that means is the branch with the largest circumference or surface area where it meets the vine, the, the least obstructed branch by means of connection, that's the branch that's going to bear the most fruit. That's the branch that's going to have the potential for the hugest crop. That's the branch that's truly abiding. And that's the picture for us, that we don't want anything to get in the way. The idea is, how close can I get to Jesus? How near to his heart can I find myself? How much can I run away from the things of this world and run headlong into the person and the presence and the power of my Savior? And the beautiful thing about it is that it really requires nothing on our part. To abide is simply to remain. It's, it's a natural process. It's a passive process. Jesus isn't talking here about manufacturing fruit. He's not talking about, it's your job, now you better go out there and produce fruit. You've never seen a tree struggle to produce fruit. Have you ever seen a tree just out there going, oh, I did it, produced fruit. It just, you'll never see that happen. It's not how it works. It's a passive, natural process. As the vine remains connected and abides in the, the, the trunk, or the branch, rather, remains connected and abides in the trunk or the vine, it just naturally, the overflow of that is, is fruit in the life of the vine. And we see evidence of that fruit in verse 7 when Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you will, what you desire, and it will be done for you. Think about the power of that verse. Jesus is saying, those who abide get their prayers answered. And you know why that is? Because he knows that he can trust that person. Sometimes we wind up, we wind up going to God just to get the stuff that he's got. You know, not because we love him and have a relationship with him, but simply because we want his stuff. It's kind of like this when my 
kids were younger and I would travel from time to time to speak at various places or do camps or conferences, I, on my way back, I might bring them like a little toy or something from my trip. And, and at first, they would be so happy to see me and give me a big hug. And, oh, dad, it's great to see you. And I'd reach into my bag and I'd pull out the little toy that I'd gotten for them. And I'd be thrilled with that. But over time, I got to the point where my kids would start to ask me, hey, dad, are you traveling again soon? Like, don't you, you need to go somewhere, you know, because that'd be cool. <laughs> Not even interested in me anymore. As they run up to me at the airport, it's straight into the bag. What can I get? Sometimes we're like that with the Lord, just after his stuff. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's the ones who abide that see their prayers answered because their hearts are attuned to and in line with the desires of their heavenly Father. So that's what happens in the life of those who abide. Now, on the flip side of that, we see something else in verse 6, where Jesus says, if anyone doesn't abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch, and he dries up, and they gather them, and they're cast into the fire, and they're burned. Now, this is the scary verse. Earlier, we talked about this idea of lifting up. Now, this, these are vines. These are branches that were never abiding. They weren't part of Jesus. And, and I, can't, I can't help but think about Judas Iscariot who had all the signs, he was there, he was close to Jesus, and for three and a half years, he walked with him, he experienced all kinds of miracles, living in relationship with Jesus or close to it. But at the end, his story is a horrible tragedy. There was no life in him, he wasn't truly connected to Jesus. And so his story serves as a warning to all of us to make sure that our hearts are truly connected at the source to Jesus, that we're abiding in him. So where does all of this leave us? As we close this evening, I want you to think back to that picture that we've been alluding to throughout the sermon with the four baskets. You've got the, the empty basket, the basket with fruit in it, the basket with more fruit in it, and the, the basket that's overflowing. Take stock of your own heart. Which, which basket would you say most accurately reflects your state tonight? Maybe you would honestly say, I, I'm the basket with no fruit in it. And that's OK, because it's never too late to start producing fruit. You might be in that dry season right now, but you could be on your way to bearing fruit and more fruit. That's where others of you are at. You're in a season of pruning. You're being lifted. You're being washed. You're being pruned by the shears of the heavenly vine dresser. And he's drawing you into place from fruit to more fruit. And I just want to encourage you, submit and surrender to the, the loving hands of that heavenly vine dresser. Submit to the, the pruning process. Why? Because although it hurts now, it's going to yield a fruitful harvest in your life in the months and years and generations to come. Others of you, you're typified right now. You're just, you're in a season of abundance, and God is blessing everything you touch. And, and there's just fruit all over your life. Praise God. I want to hang out with you. You're in a season of abundance, and there is more to come. The, the point is, no matter where you find yourself, God is in the process of bringing you from one basket to the next. His goal, his desire for you is that you would flourish that you would abound, that there would be something supernatural 
about your life, something that can only be explained by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the life that you were designed for. It's the life that you were created for. And it's what I want to pray that you would begin to experience in greater amounts and in greater measure tonight. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for this picture that you've painted for us in your word of the vine. Thank you for your loving hands that you are so faithful to prune us, that you are not pruning us to punish us, but in order to promote greater levels and degrees of fruitfulness in us. Thank you that we can trust you as we look closely at those hands that hold the shears. We can notice the scars from where they drove nails through your wrists that put to bed forever the question of whether or not you love me, whether or not you love us. We know for a fact that you do, Jesus, because you went to the cross in our place. You suffered and died for us. And now you live through us as we surrender to you. You take up residence within us and you live through us. And we become your hands and we become your feet and we become your mouthpiece to this world that desperately needs you, Jesus. So we ask for more. We're hungry for more. We desire more, Jesus. Would you bring about that fruit in our lives, Jesus? Bless your name. We worship you, Jesus. You are worthy, worthy, worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Jesus, you are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You sit enthroned in heaven above. And may you sit on the throne of our hearts. May you rule, may you reign, and may you cause us to abound and flourish so that others see us glorifying you and they give you praise in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.